San Marino. Hey everyone. Um, hi, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really happy to be with all of you tonight to talk about one of the cool chapters in the big book, um, working with others. So we're on page 89, if anyone wants to kind of follow along. The first line in this chapter, I think is beautiful because it is a guarantee. It says, Practical experience shows nothing will so much ensure Im immunity from drinking or compulsive eating as intensive work with other alcoholics or other compulsive eaters. So they are promising me that I can have immunity, right? That's like you get a shot for a virus and you're immune, you're protected. I can have immunity against compulsive eating so that I'm safe and protected from it. And what do I have to do? Work intensively with other compulsive eaters. Now, obviously there's a requirement to work with others, right? Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other compulsive eaters. So what we do is we work these steps and then it's guaranteed to give us a spiritual experience. That's what we're promised here. If anyone doesn't know what that is, it's really defined in the first appendix and on page 25 is a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive eating. Basically, as we work these steps, God comes into our hearts and does a renovation job and changes the soil of our soul so that the soul soil is inhospitable to the illness of compulsive eating. It can't thrive there. I don't know much about botany, but I do know that only certain plants and flowers can grow in certain soils. And if you change the soil, it's not going to work. Um, and that's what happens with us. God himself comes down and changes the soil of our souls so that we are free. The illness cannot thrive, cannot live in us anymore. And how do we stay that way? We get that way by working through the steps. And we stay that way by working intensively with other compulsive eaters. That doesn't mean like take a food plan and call me in the morning and I'll give you five minutes every three days. It's intensive work. And it says it works when nothing else does. And it says you can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. We're ill, not bad. So never should we be mean to someone because let's say they made a good star and then they picked up and started eating compulsively again. We don't do that because, um, you know, this is an illness. And we've talked a lot about that in other chapters. We'll touch on it a little today. Then they tell us when we work with others, the rewards that we get. It says life will take on new meaning. Um, you'll watch people recover and see them help others. You'll watch loneliness vanish. I don't know about you guys, but I used to be lonely all the time. I could be in a room with 100 people and feel like I was in a glass dome, right? I think we addicts can copyright loneliness, um, but I don't feel that anymore. It disappears in us and we get to watch it disappear in others. And it says, you'll see a fellowship grow about you. You'll have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. And then I find this line interesting. It says, we know you will not want to miss it 
Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. It says, we know you won't want to miss it. Guys, I got to tell you, back when I was binging, yeah, I would have wanted to miss it. I could have cared less about how you were doing, how anyone else was doing, or about anyone else except me, or anyone who was there whose job it was to make me happy. But when God changes the soil of our souls, along with kicking the illness of compulsive eating to the curb, he changes our priorities and we are no longer selfish the way we used to be. We won't want to miss it. The bright spot of our lives is frequent contact with newcomers, people we can help, and with our peers who speak the same language. And then it gives us some guidance on how to help people. It says, don't start out as an evangelist or a reformer. It's not my job to tell other people they're doing this program wrong. And it's also not my job to get every compulsive eater on the planet to recover. My job is to do God's will, which is to carry this message. If lots of people recover as a result, great. If not, kind of a bummer, but in God's eyes, I'm just as much of a success because God isn't concerned with my results as much as my obedience. So it tells us we can be uniquely helpful and to be helpful is our only goal. So page 90, it gives us some advice on how to help people. And I look at this and I think none of this was done to me for my first six, seven years in OA and I didn't get better. I kid you not. It was like, okay, you want a sponsor? Here, I'm available an available sponsor. Here's a food plan, or let's go over, you know, the foods you can't eat that's done, and then call me in the morning and you know, let's go. And they say, uh-uh, that is not what we are supposed to do. It says, first, find out all you can about the person. Because guys, these people we want to help, they are people, they're not projects. No one likes to feel like a charity case or a project. We find out about them. What do you like? You know, do you have kids? Um, what do you, do you like your job? Do you like your husband? You know, do, like what kind of struggles are you having with food? And it tells us if he does not want to stop drinking or binging, don't waste time trying to persuade him. Now, I want to say something about this. There is a difference between wanting to stop binging and being unable to stop binging. There are times I've talked to someone and, and I said, do you want to stop? And they said, no, I, I don't want to stop. And I'm like, what? Well, then like, why are you here? And they're like, well, I must not want to stop because I'm still picking up the food. And then I say, uh-uh, that's not what they're talking about. Said, if your fairy godmother was going to come down and wave her magic wand and remove the food obsession, would you say yes? And people always say yes. Um, if someone says, no, I really just still want to be in the food, we're not supposed to help them. But if someone says, yes, I want to stop, but barring my fairy godmother coming down, I am unable to stop. Well, then we have good news because no, we don't have a fairy godmother, but we have a God who comes down and helps us stop when we do the work we need to do to, to hook up with him. So it says, um, if he doesn't want to stop, don't try to, don't try to postpone them. 
But again, we find out all we can. It says we find out their behavior. How do they binge? You know, their problems. What are their other problems in their life? Their background, their religious leanings. I always ask people, what religion were you born? What, how were you brought up? What do you practice now? You know, even if it's nothing, I, I want to know. So I know how I can approach that person. And it says, you need this information to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Compassion, right? We want to understand the person. And it tells us sometimes it's better to wait until he goes on a binge. Um, I think that's true. Sometimes if people aren't sure they're ready, we stay friendly. People are always allowed at meetings, always allowed friendship and fellowship. But we don't start working with someone who we we are not convinced is willing to go to any lengths. We don't take them at their word. We want to see action. And we'll we'll get into that like specifically. Um, but definitely friendship. But sometimes um, we wait. And I mean, I've known people who I've talked with. And years later, I get a call saying, I'm struggling. I'm ready. I need help. So if someone isn't ready, we don't push them. And if they are, it says, we ask if they want to quit for good, not just to look good at the high school reunion, to impress the boy who dumped us when we were 17. Do we want to quit for good? And are we willing to go to any extreme to do so? So if someone says, yeah, I'm willing for a fairy godmother to come and poof and remove the obsession, but I'm not willing to eat on a food plan or go to meetings or try and develop a relationship with God. That person isn't willing to go to any length and I'm under no obligation to work with them. But if they say yes, then we talk to them. Um, and what we generally do is we tell our stories and we talk about how it's hopeless. Um, I remember sitting in meetings for years and people saying, oh, just keep coming. It'll get better. Well, I did keep coming and it didn't get better. It got worse. Um, the truth is that let's say I was going to a meeting of Diabetics Anonymous um, and I was going and I kept coming, but I never injected the insulin in my arm. I wouldn't get one bit better. So sure, keep coming. Maybe one day I'll pay attention to the guy who's talking about how insulin saved his life. Um, but I'm not going to get better until I inject the insulin. So, and we don't want to give someone false hope, right? And say, oh, go to Diabetics Anonymous. Yeah, there's some people talking about insulin, injecting it, but don't worry, your diabetes will get better. You know, lack of eyesight and lack of limbs later, I'm not gonna be any better. So we don't wanna give false hope. This is a fatal and progressive illness. So, but it tells us again, we don't give them false hope. We develop a friendship. We talk about ourselves. We ask them about their selves. If they're in a serious mood, we talk about the problems that food has caused us, um, but we never moralize or lecture. And if their mood is light, we tell funny stories. You know, I bring up my uh, chocolate cake story. I was studying abroad one year in college and my friend and I were staying at a host family 
and the host family, they were all taking a nap and we went into the refrigerator and there was a whole chocolate cake and we ate the entire chocolate cake. I guess we must have washed the plates and put it away. And then later um, the hostess woke up and she's like, God, I could have sworn I baked a cake. Um, and we were just like, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. It's okay. Um, but it's like, that's a kind of like crazy things that we do. So, and then we talk business. Page 92, it says, give him an account of the struggles you made to stop and show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. That is so important for a person to understand why they can't stop. So because we had seven newcomers, I'll just do a two minute explanation of it. Normally, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? It's like um, I have a cat allergy. So if someone invites me to her house, I automatically say, do you have a cat? And if she says yes, and I'm tempted to go, my memory will grab the little incidences of danger. You went and you were near a cat and you had an asthma attack. You know, let's say 10 different data points like that. Grabs a data point, generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger. Cats will give you an asthma attack. Don't do it. And so in my conscious mind, where I make my decisions, I decide, sorry, I'd love to go to your house but I can't because I'll end up sick. This all happens in a millisecond. Um, but when it can, and I can give a bunch more examples, but um, when it came to food, when I was in college, I binged on these certain kind of cookies. They'd come in a box of 20. I'd tell myself I'm gonna have one or two. We know how that story ended. I would eat all 20, sometimes plus. So in my memory were all these data points you say you're going to eat one or two cookies, but you're going to eat the whole box. You're going to hate yourself. You're going to gain weight. And my memory does its job, grabs a data point, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make my decisions as I'm about to go to the store and buy a box of cookies and have one or two. It's a danger. Stop. You're not going to be able to have one or two. You're going to eat all 20. You're going to hate yourself. Don't do it. Except unlike with cats and pretty much everything else in life, when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought could not get across. My memory of past binges could not help me. That is why willpower is useless when it comes to food for a compulsive eater because there is a gap between our memory of the horrible binges and the consequences and our conscious mind where we make the decisions. So we point that out to, to people and generally they don't like it if they understand it, like who likes it? Um, usually one of the early assignments, actually always an early assignment I give people is write examples of how your bridge works, right? So it works with like cat allergies and putting on sunscreen after we get a sunburn. and not running across the street without looking both ways. But when it comes to food, I want examples of how it didn't work, right? We need to see how our brains don't work in that area. And by the way, if that why, nobody knows. Were we born that way? Did it happen? We don't know, it doesn't matter. And 
once it's broken, once that bridge is broken, it can never ever be repaired. So just because we know we have a broken bridge, it's not gonna fix the bridge. What these steps do is they teach us how to build a new bridge and that's a bridge to God. But at this point, we're just telling people, you got a broken bridge, your brain doesn't work right when it comes to food. We tell how our brains don't work right. And again, we talk about it's hopeless, the hopeless condition of mind and body, but primarily in our spirit. Um, the book is really clear in chapter five. It says, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So we have to heal on a, a spiritual, on a soul level first. So that says page 93. Okay. Stress the spiritual feature freely. Like we don't, we don't put God in the back seat and focus on the food plans. Right from day one, I believe they are telling us stress the spiritual feature freely. And if the person says, well, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, it's like, okay, you don't have to go with my conception of God. Choose any conception you want as long as it makes sense. A doorknob does not make sense. Um, it says, is provided it makes sense. And then it says the main thing, two main things. He has to be willing to believe in a power greater than himself. So he may not, but he can say, okay, I'm willing to give God a chance. I'm willing to say, maybe there is a God. And I say, a person like that can start with a prayer. And the prayer can go like this. God, I'm not sure you exist. And if you exist, I'm not sure if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, I need some help. That's a maybe prayer. If God's not there, you're just talking to dead air and you've wasted 12 seconds of your life. Who cares? We've wasted way more than that binging. But if there is a God and he's really there, maybe that's the thing that's going to cause him to spring into action on your behalf. So willing to believe in a power greater than himself and live by spiritual principles. That means from day one, no lying, no stealing. We start putting the welfare of others ahead of us. Um, Karen M made a list of all the spiritual principles in the big book, and they are on our website under other resources. So that'll be um, in the chat, but we have to start living by spiritual principles. See, it is not about, let's talk about food for three days. It is about Let's talk about getting honest. Let's talk about what kind of self-sacrifice can you do? I mean, if someone says there's nothing I can do, I've told people drive to Target and put away shopping carts in the parking lot. Do something that is a self-sacrifice that gets you out of yourself. And it says, we don't argue religion. Sometimes people are more religious than we are. And then it says, page 93, he may be an example of the truth, Faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. You know, self-sacrifice. If I'm going in my pool or watching as much TV as I want, I'm not doing enough self-sacrifice. If I've caught up on all the Netflix series I want to binge on, I'm probably not doing enough self-sacrifice. Um, so again, page 14 in the book says, if an alcoholic 
or compulsive eater failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. We're all going to have trials and low spots. It's guaranteed. But we can survive it if we've built up our spiritual muscle through self-sacrifice for others. Okay. Um, and then it tells us, okay, this is still the first conversation with the guy, right? All this. We're still pretty much just, just having the Starbucks conversation. We meet for coffee. We're chatting. Um, so it says, outline the program of action. Basically, tell him what the steps are. Um, why you're doing step 12, right? I do step 12 because it's important for me to stay abstinent, but also because I, I love my girls. I love working with them um, most of the time. You know, God hasn't finished with me yet. Not 100% selfless, but um, it gets to be fun. And again, they smash home, suggest how important it is that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. So from day one, we can start thinking, who are the people in my life? What can I, how can I place their welfare ahead of my own? What can I do that will make their lives easier? And that is the key to getting and staying abstinent. That and doing what we think God wants us to. So it says, okay, page 94, your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all of the program. Of course, because we all suffer from terminal uniqueness, right? Well, I'm different. I'm thinner. I'm fatter. I'm smarter. I'm not as smart, you know, the younger, older. We all have reasons why we're different. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Someone may say, well, I just went through a loss. Someone may say, I just started a new job. It doesn't matter. You know, think about it. If someone's told they have cancer and they need to go to chemo, that's it. They just need to go to chemo. So they tell us, okay, give them a chance to think it over. Here's what I generally do. I talk to someone. I give them something to do. These days, um, here they talked about giving someone the book and asking them to read the book. Most of us have read the book, at least the text section by now. I generally give someone a podcast to listen to and some work on it and ask them to let me know when they're done. And then we go over the work. So it gives them something to do, right? They put their money where their mouth is. You say, you're ready. Okay, do some work. They come back. We get together. We go over it. And then I say, okay, now, and it's a podcast I made. So they have an idea of my style. Say, are you willing? And they say, yes. And I said, here are the things that I require. And I think a sponsor at this point, you give them a little work. If they do it, lay out your requirements, but don't lay out your requirements before you first have the conversation where you just let them know that you care about them. You know, you want a conversation at first, then you can lay out your requirements. Obviously anyone could make their own, but just here's mine. Um, 30 minutes a day, at least with God, because this whole program is about developing a relationship with God. Okay. So if you're going to develop a relationship with someone, you need to spend time. So 30 minutes with God, I ask them to make three phone calls a day to people in recovery. And I give them a bunch of numbers of people who, who I've sponsored and who, 
you know, um, the tacit agreement is you're going to help other people who are new once you get through the steps or are far along the road. Um, I tell them how many meetings a week they need to go to, you know, depending on their life situation, usually a meeting a day at the beginning, unless, you know, again, if it's a single mother with three jobs and eight kids, I'm going to have a little compassion. Um, and to be on a food plan that's weighed and measured and texted to me every morning. So that's just what what I require and that they look for ways to be unselfish. And then I generally say, take a day to think about it. Like really think about it. Now, sometimes people say, I've thought about it, you know, I'm in and like, okay. And then we get started. But they tell us if he's not interested, if he wants only a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. Guys, they are talking about someone that you have not yet started sponsoring. You've just had an initial conversation when they say you may have to drop him. We are really careful once we start sponsoring people, we don't drop someone just because they go off their food plan. We may, but for me, the reason I would stop sponsoring someone is if they're not doing what I tell them. So if someone says, I will ate off my food plan. I'll ask them, have you been making your calls, time with God, doing the work? And if it's yes, and I believe them, then sometimes I think, okay, you know what? We just need to work really work more quickly to get you through the steps and connected with God first. But almost always there's something that happens. It's like Bill Wilson said that the moment he made up his mind to go through with this process, he had the curious feeling that his alcohol obsession would be removed, which in fact it was. And that's what I've seen generally happens. Um, a beautiful quote I've heard from Herb Kay, willingness allows grace to enter that when we become really willing and start doing the work and we keep our, you know, we're just so involved in calling people and trying to get a relationship with God and all that, that um, then we stop obsessing about food. It just goes away. So someone comes back, they're ready and they give us some more advice if we're sponsors. It says, don't be discouraged if you can't find people who want to do this, who are desperate enough. And one of the founders of the program, I don't know if it was Bill Wilson or not, said he worked with six people before he found someone willing to do this work. And they didn't get better. But he stayed sober. He's, we stay abstinent by helping people. So it says, okay, suppose someone's willing what do we do? And it tells them, we go out of our way to help people. Page 97, it says, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. Again, that's our foundation stone, helping others. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. Good Samaritan is, a, um, is in the New Testament. And the Good Samaritan um, sacrifice money, time, convenience, um, his own personal comfort, 
to help another person. And it tells us like the things it says, a drunk may smash the furniture in your home. Well, that says sometimes like we have people in our home who, you know, we might feel are more unsavory than the people we usually hang out with. Sometimes you have to administer a sedative under a doctor's direction. Um, you may have to call the police or an ambulance. So again, I don't think this happens so much for compulsive eaters, but it should make us think like, what am I really doing to help others? What, you know, am I really doing self-sacrifice? So it says, what if a person doesn't want to work this program? They just say, I don't want to do it. And it says you can encourage their family um, because if the family practices spiritual principles, there's a much better chance that the addict will recover. Why? And I think this is also good for me to think not only if um, if I have an addict in my house, but what if I have like unruly teenagers or, you know, a spouse who who isn't acting the way I want. And it says we we are to practice spiritual principles and then things improve. Why? Well, one, the atmosphere will be more calm and that's always better for anyone. Um, two, love breeds love. Just love breeds love. I think we can all think about a time when we did something wrong and the person we thought was really gonna come after us and instead loved us. I mean, it melts our heart. And if I'm practicing spiritual principles, I'm inviting God in. I'm asking God to just handle the situation and I give up my right to manage it the way that I want. Page 98, it says, um, we give, but we don't put our work on a service plane. People need to rely on God instead of us. Um, now, of course, at the beginning, when people are just learning, they're going to call us with, you know, all sorts of questions, how to help with their lives and stuff. But if I call my sponsor now with a question or a problem, almost every time she'll say to me, did you go to God first? And as a sponsor, they tell us what our job is. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well, regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. And I had a little like silly example of that today. I see it's in the chat. So everyone knows it's my birthday today. Um, after dinner, I took a walk and my kids hadn't called me. And I was feeling like a little bummed, like not really resentful, but, but like bummed. And I was texted Melissa my kids haven't called me for my birthday and I'm bummed. And I go back to my house and on the front lawn are six Robin red breasts. And to me, those, those are special. And I just said, I surrender. I'm not going to get back at them. I'm not going to say unkind words to them. I just surrender them not doing anything for my birthday within literally 10 seconds. I get a text from my son. Sorry, I haven't called. Um, I've been busy today. I'll call you later, but happy birthday, mother. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. 10 seconds after I surrender and I'm walking into the house and I'm like copying the text 
and to send it to Melissa to show her like, you wouldn't believe as soon as I surrender. And then the phone rings and guess who? It was my daughter calling to say happy birthday. And she said, I'd actually called two times before, but it went right to voicemail. And um, so I surrendered. And I think what that does is it unties God's hands. So maybe he puts a thought in my kid's head. My daughter did then say, dad texted us and reminded us. But for me, it was just an illustration that I surrendered and that allowed God to go to work. Now, it doesn't always happen within 10 seconds. And honestly, sometimes it doesn't happen within 10 years, but that's okay. God's in it for the long game. And, you know, I have to be too. So something um, super critical, page 98. And I, you know, I was thinking I'm going to, there's a talk I want to do soon, like hidden gems in the big book and pick out like a hidden gem from each chapter. And here's what I think here, page 98, where it talks about um, if his family is at fault, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Now they're talking about a brand newcomer who decides to work this. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. So right away, that's what we focus on, not arguing, not fault finding. We can use one of my favorite prayers, the shut up prayer. The shut up prayer goes like this. God, please keep one hand on my shoulder and the other over my mouth. It says in many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, avoiding argument and fault finding, but it must be done. It must be done if any results are to be expected. So if I'm expecting to be, if I want to be abstinent, I need to avoid argument and fault finding like the plague. And it tells us if we persist in this, the effect on our family will be great. Um, and it says, I start admitting my own defects because if I admit mine, it makes it easier for other people in my house to admit theirs. I mean, I know a lot of times my son would say, mom, you did whatever, whatever, whatever. And, you know, of course I would defend myself because I was always right. But, um, but then I learned, you know what, whether I was right or not, it doesn't matter. I would just say, oh, Dan, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I shouldn't, you know, I'm sorry. It's a, now you're good. It's okay. And like, it would all be fine. All I have to do is admit I'm wrong, say I'm sorry, and it's fine. Um, and it tells us if we don't do this, page 99, um, if and we cause damage and don't repair it immediately, we will pay the penalty by a spree. So again, I don't think we focus on that enough. We have to avoid argument and fault finding. We can't be um, mean and nasty in our with our families and be all sunshine and rainbows to everyone in OA. Uh-uh, we're going to be in the food and, you know, in no time at all. Okay, then they tell us we can recover no matter what. Page 100, remind the prospect his recovery isn't dependent on people. It's dependent on his relationship with God. It's not dependent on people and it's not dependent on circumstances. So, you know, we've all gone to meetings and heard or said, like I used to, I binged because, and there was always a reason. Uh-uh, 
this book tells me it is never because of circumstances. So someone calls me and say, I, you know, I picked up and it was because da, da, da. I'm like, uh-uh, what was wrong with your spiritual condition? Were you in resentment? Had you told a lie? Were you not helping other people? Um, you know, that's what we look at our relationship with God. And then my second favorite line in the lines in the book, it says, um, the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Well, of course they are. My plans are limited by my imagination. But if I go by, if I put myself in God's hands, how could I have planned that my son and daughter would like both get in touch with me within a minute? No way. Um, better than anything we could have planned. And then it tells us a conditional promise. Follow the dictates of a higher power. So that's the condition. If I follow the dictates of a higher power, then you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. God can overcome all circumstances. Either he can change the circumstances or change me so that I'll be able to bear the circumstances. Um, bottom of page 100, it says, if we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things we couldn't do before. We don't have to avoid um, restaurants or grocery stores. At the beginning, we generally do because we're not spiritually fit. Um, but it says, as we recover, we can live life normally. Um, an alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. See how they say that? If my mind is thinking about food, it's because there's something wrong with my spiritual status. Um, so it tells us if we're going places uh, that might be tempting, we always ask, do I have a legitimate reason for being there? Or am I trying to steal some, you know, some vicarious pleasure? Um, so we want to go and think, how can I be of use at this place? Maybe find the person who no one's talking to and talk to that person. How can I be of use? We look for our motives. Um, and actually, that's a good thing to do anywhere we go. Um, do not think of what you can get out of the occasion, page 102. Think of what you can bring to it. So when we go to work, when we have dinner with our families, what can I bring to the occasion? So page 102 still, it tells me what our job is. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. That is our purpose. And we start out doing it because we have to, but again, it becomes our joy, our great sense of purpose. Um, and it tells us then, okay, now let's talk about liquor. So they say some people serve it to friends who aren't alcoholics, but some people say, no, I'm not serving liquor to anyone, even if they're not alcoholics. And it says, we never argue this question. And I would say this goes for a lot of things. This goes for food plans, right? There's some people who say no one should ever have wheat, or there's some people who say three meals a day, nothing in between. And so like people say all different things and says, we don't argue this question. We feel that each family in the light of their own circumstances ought to, to decide for themselves. 
So my food plan is between myself, my sponsor, my nutritionist, if I have one, and God. I don't need anyone to, you know, I actually don't share my food plan with people because I don't want people to say, oh, she eats this so I can eat it if it's something they can't, or to sit there and say, oh, you're eating this thing that I've someone once said, oh, you eat that, that maybe you're not a real compulsive eater. So I don't want people to judge me. And I don't want put, to put people, give them something that might tempt them. So I just don't discuss it. Uh, and it says we are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. I crossed out the word drinking and I wrote sugar. You know, we are not people who lobby against the sugar industry. We're just people who say, you know, certain foods may not agree with us. And it says, we're not to be witch burners. Witch burners are people who say, if you're not like me, you're evil. You don't have to be like me. It's okay. Um, it tells us we can't have intolerance. We don't have intolerance for people with different food plans, different um, religions, different political points of view. We just, we just don't. We have a live and let live attitude. And they conclude by saying, our problems are of our own making. Bottles or food were only a symbol. Our problems are of our own making because we lived selfish, self-centered lives. These steps teach us how to live unselfish, God-centered lives. We do it ourselves and then we are privileged to go and help others do it. Um, we like to say around here that God launches search and rescue missions for addicts. And our job once we recover is to join him on those search and rescue missions. And for someone like me who had no sense of purpose, it has given me a great, great sense of purpose. And with that, I pass, thanks.